The cast of characters read like an old version of Clue, and the mystery of who done it was just as intriguing. Not just one, but six people murdered in a waterfront cottage on the tip of Erlins Point in the spring of 1934. The wealthy community was just about six miles outside Bremerton, but it was a world apart. While the port town of Bremerton was always busy and bustling with ships and cargo constantly churning in and out of the harbor, people coming and going all hours of the day and night, the hamlet of Erlins Point was a haven from the noise, an easy getaway where the well-to-do could just do nothing, a place where the well-heeled could kick off their shoes and not worry about who might be watching. It was both close to home and out of the way, perfect place for murder. The scene of the crime was laid out like a game board. The bodies strewn all around the cottage, at a card table in the game room, by the fireplace in the entryway, in repose in a bedroom. Violence had erupted in nearly every room in the house, and the victims seemed just as random. A wealthy grocer and the older woman that he'd married. A vaudeville actress and her prize fighter husband. A retired Navy machinist and a Bremerton bartender. As for the murder weapon, was it the revolver, or the hammer, or the rope found at the scene? And who was behind this massacre? It was more than the local police could handle, more than even the county sheriff could take on. So they called in the man who would come to be known as America's Sherlock Holmes. And that's just the tip of the iceberg in this case of life imitating art, history repeating itself, and a bizarre love triangle driving it all. You've got a femme fatale falling in love with the bad boy, six murders, possible mob hits. you got the Bonnie and Clyde motif going on. In the end, one killer would walk, one would get the noose. I'm Kim Shepard with Carolyn Osorio, and this is the scene of the crime. Oh my gosh, Kim, I am just smiling ear to ear. That scene setter just really uh, took me back in time. I don't know about you, but my sister and I used to play Clue all the time growing up. And it got me thinking about even from a young age that I was into crime and I didn't even know it, trying to figure out the who's and the why's. Did you play Clue a lot when you oh, were growing yeah. up? Oh yeah, any kind of deductive reasoning game. I loved those kinds of games. Mm -hmm. And so um, what's interesting because at home, we, with my kids, do, the, do your kids play Clue? Because mine have never played Clue. They don't play Clue, but their favorite online game right now is called Among Us. Oh, my kids do. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. the same type of kind of deductive reasoning trying to figure out who, who done it. Okay, so I didn't even know, but my, my uh, seven-year-old was like, Among Us. I'm like, Among Us? Are you saying Humongous? Like, I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I was so, like, close, but even my older kids are playing it, too. So... But I was so interested in, for those that have never played Clue, the object of the game is for players to collect clues to figure out the murder suspect, weapon, and location. And the game took place in a Victorian mansion 
And the victim's name uh, was Mr. Body with two Ds. <laughs> but according to History.com, the creator of the game did so as a way to kind of relieve the boredom of London air raids in World War II. So for all of us in uh, quarantine, you know, if you have some extra time and you want to think up a game, you know, that's basically how he created Clue. And he was a before World War II, he was a piano player at like some of these really wealthy estates in England, you know, think the crown. Which he probably got a lot of ideas for his characters. That's what, yes, exactly. So he'd watch, you know, guests, you know, in elegant homes, skulking around, shrieking and falling dead. And and so I just find that that backstory is like super interesting. And, and like, it's exciting to think of the day when we get to go back and like have these dinner parties and have, you know, interactions with other people and, you know, have fun again. You well, know? now we get to do it all virtually. Uh, for this episode, we spoke with Steve Dunkelberger, a local historian and host of Steve's Drunk History, which is like a cross between a history lesson and a bar crawl. But now that we can't do the bar crawl part, he's doing a lot of these online now. So check out Steve's Drunk History. Uh, he was the perfect person to add a little color to this dark comedy, which has a cast of characters that seems like it's straight out of one of those old true detective stories. It started on a Saturday afternoon in March of 1934. Thomas Sanders and Knud Erland, a couple of retirees in their 80s, were out for a walk in the little neighborhood known as Erland's Point when they first noticed that something was amiss in their quiet corner of the world. Now, I already have to take a little detour here to tell you that not only was Knud Erland the namesake of that community, but his real claim to fame was for his invention, the patented hammock bag which is exactly what it sounds like. It's a hammock that can turn into a bag and vice versa. And as you can imagine, out in the Pacific Northwest, all the outdoorsy types oh, yeah. really liked it. So anyhow, back to March of 1934. It wasn't quite summer yet, so many of these waterfront homes are still empty. Their wealthy owners had not yet returned for their annual holidays. But there were dogs barking, incessantly, frantically, as if something were very wrong. The sound led Sanders and Erland to three French poodles who'd been shut up in a Packard sedan that was parked just outside the home of Frank and Anna Flyter. The two men took care of the dogs first, good on them, <laughs> got them out of the car, gave them some food and water, and then he looked around toward the house. The white clapboard home had a single brick chimney, but there was no smoke billowing out. With the water on one side and trees on the other, the house had windows all the way around to maximize the views but all of the shades were drawn. There was no way to peek inside and no indication that anyone was home anyway. As is typical in this type of little hamlet, the men knew the couple who lived there. Frank Flyter was just 45 years old, but it had made his mark as a grocer in Bremerton and already had amassed enough wealth to retire. His wife was six years his senior and already a widow. Her late husband, a Bremerton druggist, had left her a nice little nest egg. Sanders also knew Frank's brother, Lewis. So he called Lewis on the phone to tell him what they'd found. Lewis was, of course, concerned for his brother and his wife, so he asked the men to go back and investigate a little further. Sanders and Erland continued looking around the house, knocking on the kitchen door in the back, still getting no answer. And then they noticed there was a small window with the blinds stuck up a little ways, so they used a flashlight to peer inside, and they saw what looked like two bodies on the floor. Sanders rushed home again and called the Kitsap County Sheriff's Office. A group of deputies and the sheriff himself, Rush Blankenship, responded, forcing open the kitchen door to determine exactly what they were dealing with. And the scene they encountered had to be 
utterly shocking. The bodies of four men and two women all had been bound and gagged, their eyes and mouths taped shut. And the blood was on just about every surface throughout the home. Sheriff Blankenship ordered one of his deputies to stay at the scene of the crime, protect the integrity of the evidence, while another deputy called for help from the Seattle Police Department. The phone in the home had been ripped out of the wall. Wow. So they had to go somewhere else to a neighbor's house in order to call Seattle police. Seattle offered to send their best investigators, but it would be the following day before they'd be able to catch a ferry out to Erland's Point. And this is where the dark comedy takes its first strange turn. Not only did that deputy who was left back to protect the crime scene fail to carry out his assignment, he tipped off the local papers to the massacre. And he let more than 100 gawkers traipse through the house for 25 cents a pop. Dunkelberger, our local historian, says people left gum wrappers and other trash at the scene. And who knows how many pieces of evidence they may have touched or even stolen altogether. The newspaper reporters and photographers were at the house as well. The Bremerton Sun at the time reported that someone actually stole the stockings off of Emma's body. That's a little icky for even me. As you know, back you know in the 30s, silk stockings were worth a pretty penny. Most people couldn't afford them. The, the thing that's crazy about this is that this is like a murder tour on steroids. And oh, on yeah. top of that, like, this is the depression. So it's like you have this crime and, you know, a way to make money. And they eat. I mean, it's it's it kind of it led me down that rabbit hole about morbid curiosity. Mm. And it's basically how we describe something horrific that we can't look away from, like a car accident. So you have people actively paying to see something awful. And not just a few, but droves and droves of people. And so I, I looked into this. And according to Roland Moore, who's a professor of psychiatry at the University of Washington, you know, we tend to look at car accidents because Quote, the accident provides a close encounter without yourself being directly involved or being put at risk. And it's kind of like that's what a crime scene is like you're 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 living through it, but you're not you know, it's not dangerous, but you're getting that feel of like. Wow. You know, this is... Yeah. You could feel what it would be like, but at the same time, you can look away, you can walk away at any point. Yeah. So there's not that same, you know, if you're involved in it and you don't have a choice, that's a totally different feeling entirely. But to be an onlooker and knowing that you could walk away or you could look away if it gets to be too much. Yeah. The morbid curiosity. I mean, I've I've had that. There have been times where I've looked and, and I'm like, why am I looking at this? <laughs> I know. Like, I've had times, like, with the kids when an accident is happening and I say, don't look. And I use that as a kind of learning lesson to, like, hey, don't look at somebody else's worst day. But then on the other hand, as somebody who's into true crime, I, I have I grapple with that because it's you know, like curiosity, that, the curiosity. But I think that it goes from we want to know the lore of what happened, but we don't want the gore. You know, this is getting into the gore where you're Absolutely. actually going in, looking at bodies, looking at blood everywhere, stealing stockings. You know, that's a whole nother level, which it sounds like is what happened in this case. Yeah. So the local reporters who were there with the crowd, they called the story into the larger papers in Seattle. So by the following morning, many of these gory details about the crime scene were already in print, even before Seattle investigators had a chance to get their first look. Imagine being the Seattle Police Department waking up and 
they're going to a crime scene thinking that they're going to be sorting through this stuff. And not only do they arrive and there's a crowd of people, but they're reading about it in the newspaper, complete with photographs, as they're going to the crime scene. Now, no true detective story would be complete without a crack detective. Someone like Luke May. He was the chief of detectives for Seattle police at the time and is now recognized as a pioneer of modern forensics. He helped develop techniques that are still in use today, like fingerprint matching and firearm identification. Even before joining SPD full-time, May created his own consulting detective agency and would provide lab services to police departments who didn't have their own facilities. He also regularly wrote up his cases for the popular magazine True Detective Mysteries. In a biography by May's granddaughter, he is described as a slender man with a wry, tight-lipped smile who was slightly stooped and famously bald. And just to paint this picture a little further, the man who would later become known as America's Sherlock Holmes actually lied about his date of birth starting when he was just a teenager because he wanted to join the police department, but he knew they wouldn't take him seriously if they found out how young he was. So he was investigating his very first murder case at the tender age of 16. Wow. <laughs> so was he a police officer and a true crime writer? Yes. So he went through several phases. He had his own detective agency. He was a detective with Seattle Police, and he also wrote true crime stories. He did those things kind of on and off throughout his life. Wow. But he knew from a very early age what he wanted to do and, you know, something that he was really, truly good at. So on Sunday, the day after the murder scene was discovered, Detective May and his team from Seattle arrived at Erland's Point to find a line of traffic heading to the Flyder home and a crowd of people surrounding the house itself peeking through the windows. Sheriff's deputies assured May that none of the bodies had been moved. Nothing had been touched. The crime scene was just as they had found it. The, sure. That, that <laughs> officer is like, has to be like just quaking in his boots when he sees all of the the bigwigs coming from Seattle like and there's a line of people like carnival. Yeah. Well, according to a drawing that was submitted at trial, there were bodies all over the house. So let me tell you a little bit about how this was all laid out. In the front room just inside the entryway was the body of Frank Flyter, the homeowner, found on the floor with his hands bound together. Nearby, the body of Eugene Chenevert, a 51-year-old ex-prize fighter and former vaudeville entertainer, was found next to the fireplace. Just outside the entryway, the body of 56-year-old Ezra Bolcom, the bartender from Bremerton, was found laying halfway between the hallway and a closet. And then just off the hallway in the front bedroom, Anna Flyter, the mistress of the house, was found. She'd been tied up, gagged, murdered in her own bed. Down the hall at the back of the house was the game room. That's where they found the body of 62-year-old Magnus Jordan, the retired Navy machinist, still sitting at the card table. And on a nearby sofa, the body of Margaret Chenevert, a 48-year-old former actress and the wife of that murdered prize fighter. All of them had been killed in different ways. Some had been bludgeoned, some had been beaten or strangled or stabbed, but all of them had their throats slit. And despite the herds of people who went through the home, there was still plenty of physical evidence, maybe even too much. Not only was there tape and rope from the victims who'd been bound or gagged, but there were several murder weapons, including a carpenter's hammer, a fireplace poker, two carving knives. All of them had been bloodied. There was also shell casings from a 32 revolver. And there were broken bottles and splatters of blood throughout the house, including a 
big pile of blood that was on the kitchen floor, although it didn't appear that any of the victims had been cut by glass. So that's one thing that kind of didn't make sense at the time. Do we know how long the bodies at this point had been there? Yes. So they, thanks to Detective May and his forensic techniques, they were able to figure out a timeline for when these folks were murdered. They believe the murders happened on Friday night. So they weren't discovered until Saturday, and then the investigation didn't start until Sunday. Okay. Detective May and his team collected as much evidence as they could. They took it back to the lab in Seattle. Dunkelberger says there were also a few things that were glaringly absent, including cash and jewelry. They were all known to carry a lot of money. It would not be unusual for them to carry around, you know, $1,000 in their pocket. And all their wallets and stuff were missing. The jewelry was missing. Anna's diamond ring, which in 1934 was worth $1,400, was missing. That is $27,000 in today's money. And that was just one ring that was missing. What's interesting is because they're probably putting together that it was obviously a robbery with all this stuff being gone. But that's a lot of carnage, like six people slaughtered for a diamond ring and some cash i mean it just is not and then all these weapons were they were they do they know if these weapons were already there and they were just makeshift weapons or that they if they were brought i mean it just seems like a very chaotic scene we will get to that so the immediate theory like you said was that this was a robbery gone bad the criminals turning to murder to take out the witnesses they indicated you know the throat slitting was so that no one would talk but there was no indication of who might have done it, and the trail quickly went cold. Now, this was the 1930s when some of the most popular books and magazines were based on true crime stories. So the Seattle Times took this opportunity to sell a few more papers by leveraging the desires of amateur armchair detectives to solve a real murder mystery. The Seattle Times had a contest helped solve the Bremerton murder mystery in their newspaper. They would give you a dollar for every letter that you wrote with a theory of what's the story behind this killing. They paid a whole dollar. That's a, you know, that's a day's wages back then. And the person who won it was a Martin Elliott, who on April 13th, so this is now two weeks after the crime, submitted, quote, a detailed confession to the mystery editor who was collating this contest and signed it sinisterly the killer you know what's interesting <laughs> is that it's like being a part of something bigger than yourself mm -hmm. like the first what has now become modern day internet sleuths mm -hmm. you know like how can we put it together how i mean it always captivates people and yet you know back in the day you know newspapers and and maybe books would be would look at true crime as you know well it's it's not serious it's, it's too it's, salacious it's salacious and yet people have this need to want to be a part of a, a part of that, and we can see that now with with um, you know where crime fighting efforts have have gone with genetic genealogy and and anyway, it's just kind of an interesting and crime con. It's like the modern version of this. Yeah, yeah, and I could see how with all the photos and all the information, people getting really sucked in and really like, what's going to happen? Who did this? So. Yeah. Well, Martin Elliott was awarded that twenty dollar prize for coming up with the best theory. But the official case remained unsolved for more than a year. It wasn't until 18 months later that cops would finally get a major break. In September of 1935, Seattle police were in a shootout with a couple of burglars. The suspects managed to get away, but cops got the license plate of their getaway car, 
and tracked it down to a home in Sumner. Known felon Larry Palouse was arrested there for the burglary and shootout. Police also detained and questioned his wife, Peggy Palouse. Now, Larry was a habitual criminal, could have been looking at life in prison. To avoid that, he offered to give investigators the name of the man responsible for a murder in Oregon, the murder of a special investigator, Frank Aiken, which had taken place in 1933. He fingered his former roommate, Leo Hall, as the trigger man. According to Palouse, he had just gotten out of prison in 1933 when he rented a room with Hall in a Seattle boarding house. And that wasn't the only thing that the men shared. At the time, they were both dating Peggy Peterson, a local barmaid, and the woman whom Larry would later make his wife. When Peggy found out that Larry had given the cops Leo's name, she was worried that he might blame her, might even try to kill her. So she approached a local attorney, Ralph Hoare, and told him the most incredible story that he had ever heard. Peggy said that she and Leo Hall had carried out the attack at Erland's Point. But as Dunkelberger explains, Peggy claimed that she only went along because Hall threatened her, and she said it was only supposed to be a robbery. Although she never confessed to killing anybody, she confesses that she was there. And she gave such a detailed account that say, you know, this is a crazy story. Oh, wait a minute. Everything sort of matches to the point that she went with the detectives out to the crime scene and walked them through all the stuff that happened. You know, she mentioned her heel and they had found the heel and it matched her shoe and said that he had shot at her and they found a, a stray bullet in the wall. So Peggy had explained that the heel of her shoe had broken off during the crime and investigators later found that heel at the flighter's home. So again, that evidence that was collected early on was able to help them definitively link this crime. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy that her husband, Larry, gets busted and then thrice, tries to throw Leo under the bus. Right. But in doing so, he's throwing Peggy under the bus, too, because once they start talking to Leo about the crime that he's committed, of course, his leverage is, you know, basically what he and Peggy did together. I don't know. It just I think it puts her in a really hard position. Unless Larry didn't know that she was a part of it and thought that he was ratting out his buddy. This is true. So this is really like, why would Peggy be involved in something like this? Yeah. So at the time of the murders, Peggy was dating both of these guys, Mm -hmm. right? Leo and Larry. She married Larry about five months after the murders at Erland's Point. So by the time Larry's arrested for that shootout a year and a half later, he and Peggy are husband and wife. Okay. But when the crimes happened, they were just dating. And she was dating around. And she was dating the so other guy, So it's possible too, she didn't tell him about her part in the crime. Yeah. We don't know. So Peggy told investigators that while she was working as a waitress at a Bremerton cafe, she overheard Anna Flyter talking with a friend about how her first husband, that wealthy pharmacist, had passed away and left her a bunch of money. Anna and her new husband, the retired grocer, were known to throw a lot of parties at their house in Erland's Point. They were known to have a lot of really wealthy friends. Peggy said she told one of her boyfriends about this conversation, and that's where the plan was hatched to rob the couple. Leo and Peggy, they get masks and they get gloves and they take the ferry. They get Leo's pro-herald revolver because, you know, you got to be classy about such things. And they go in thinking that they were just going to rob Frank and Anna. And then they find out that there are other people there. And according to Peggy's testimony, she walks in and said, okay, you know, this is a robbery. And so she ties everybody up with tape and ice skating shoelaces because Leo 
apparently worked as a side job in an ice skating rink in Seattle. <laughs> then Anna apparently said that, you know, she was feeling sick. So Leo escorted her into her bedroom and then stabbed her to death to the point that the blade bent. Wow. I mean, Leo sounds like, what's his backstory? Yeah. Well, according to Peggy's story, after Hall killed Anna, she decided things had gone way too far. She started screaming at him to stop, but he refused, and he even started firing his gun at her. And that's when she says she ran out the door and she lost the heel of her shoe as she ran across the back lawn. Hall then went back to taking out the witnesses, killing bartender Ezra Bolcom in the hallway using a fireplace poker, bludgeoning him with it, then heading back toward the game room. So then there's two dead, and two people are tied up in the back room, and two people are tied up in the front room. And the prize fighter broke loose and grabbed a beer bottle and hit it over Leo's head. And uh, I believe he just he's bludgeoned to death. Then probably the next one to go was Mr. Fleidler, because he was he was tied up in the same living room den area. And he was also beaten to death because there was like hammers involved. There were, uh, you know, punches involved. They're beaten fairly brutally. So while all this is happening, Peggy was hitchhiking back to Bremerton. She then took the ferry home to Seattle. She said she ran into Hall a few days later and he told her that he had to take out the witnesses because one of them had recognized Peggy. He also said that Chenevert, the ex-prize fighter, had broken out of his restraints. They had a serious brawl in the kitchen where that big pool of blood was found. Hall said that Chenevert came at him with a broken beer bottle and that it was Hall who suffered a severe head wound. And that's what left all the blood behind. Dunkelberger says when the evidence collected by that crack detective, Detective May, it all matched up with Peggy's wild story. They even found the ice skating laces tying up the victims. They recovered that revolver. They found the heel of the shoe on the back lawn. So Peggy and Hall were arrested. They're arrested on October 29th, and the trial started on the 9th of December. That's a quick turnaround. And the trial lasted just 10 days, included 61 witnesses, some 50 exhibits. Leo spoke half a day on his defense, Peggy never took the stand, and the defense didn't present any witnesses on her behalf, thinking that they didn't prove their case against her. Peggy and Leo were tried together, but only charged in connection with the murder of Chenevert. It was a tactical move by the prosecution to see what kind of defense the pair would mount, and to give themselves the opportunity to charge the five other murders if their initial case fell through. The verdict came back at 11.10 on December 19, 1935, where eight men and four women returned the verdict that Hall was found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced him to the death penalty, but Peggy was let off scot-free, acquitted of all charges. So one was sent to Walla Walla for the death penalty, and one went home that afternoon. Now, from the moment of his arrest, Leo Hall denied that 27-year-old Peggy was just the naive young woman who was caught up in his scheme. As he told the story, the burglary was all her idea. And Dunkelberger says there were a lot of people who believed him. Well, I can't believe that she gets off scot-free. I mean, she worked at the bar. She overheard the conversation. She started, I mean, at the very minimum, she should be getting some, I mean, she should be going away for years. And on top of that, I find it hard to believe that he could kill six people by himself. I mean, did she tie every help tie everybody up and then she left? Yes. Or like... So when they initially arrived, 
he held the gun on the victims while she tied and gagged them. And so by the time she left, they were all already tied up. Okay. Okay. Still. Still. I mean, yes, still. Like she was, she did help in the planning. She admits to helping in the planning. She says that she didn't really intend to carry out the robbery, but he threatened her and that's why she did it. But still. And didn't she have like do that thing that always happens where she like wore really plain dresses during the the trial? Are you getting to that later? Okay. It seemed like there was a lot of, she was just a 27-year-old misanthrope who got caught up in this that. You know, they commented a lot about what she's wearing and that she cried all the time. And every time she testified, she would cry about something and she was constantly dabbing her eyes with stuff. But there were a lot of columnists who pointed out that, you know, she only cried when the cameras on her. So they got a good photograph of her crying. Then once they got their photographs of her crying, she would stop crying. And so it was kind of crying on cue. But they, they mentioned how she, you know, created her dress in her prison cell and had a nice white doily collar. And I just, I just imagine like Winona Ryder during her criminal trial. You know, always showed up in black, just quiet, spoken, emotional. And even today, there's a theory that far from being an unwilling accomplice, Peggy Palouse had actually fantasized about the gangster life. As she grew up on a small farm in the 30s, she dreamed of being part of a criminal duo like Bonnie and Clyde. Well, and it's ironic that Bonnie and Clyde got gunned down in 1934. So that obviously <laughs> yeah. was like on her mind. And then she's hanging out with two two dudes and doing nefarious stuff. She so was just trying to she... figure out which one she wanted to be her Clyde. <laughs> yeah. But instead of turning into Bonnie and Clyde, author Don Moody, who was researching this case for a book that never ended up getting published, but he said that she wound up being more like Lizzie Borden, an attractive young woman who knew how to work a crowd and managed to get away with murder. Moody also speculates the robbery wasn't the real motive, that Hall was actually a hitman hired by a local organized crime ring. A few weeks before the massacre at Erland's Point, the flighters had filed an application to open a card room and cabaret in Seattle. The crime bosses at the time reportedly had their men approach the flighters about monthly protection payments. But instead of paying up, the flighters said, we'll just open our business in Bremerton. That angered the crime bosses who, according to Moody's theory, decided they needed to make an example out of this couple for anyone else who might try to defy their orders. Dunkelberger says it's not a bad theory, and there's a lot of reason to think investigators never did find out what really happened that night. One of the witnesses said that there were three people fleeing the scene. So there's a theory that Leo Hall and Larry Palouse and Peggy were all there. Leo didn't mention that Larry was there because there'd be no benefit for him to mention that because that would implicate him being there. The only defense he had is, it was me. And that defense just didn't work. So Peggy Palouse went on to move to Portland. She had a son where she continued working as a waitress. Leo Hall, after his conviction, was sent to Walla Walla, where he was hanged on September 11th, 1936. The local papers would explain the execution cost $5.05. That was for the rope that went around Hall's neck with the noose already tied. It was purchased from San Quentin for $5. And the electricity to spring the trap door under Hall's feet cost about five cents. As for the flighter's waterfront home where this massacre took place, author Don Moody interviewed a woman who lived in that home in the 70s, and she told him that she was familiar with the crimes, and yeah, there was some blood in the bedroom closet and under the living room carpet, but 
didn't bother her. She never did see any ghosts. Wow. <laughs> so I guess that's her threshold. Blood is okay as long I, as the ghosts don't come with it. I, I mean, it's it's interesting. I mean, I, I just, I cannot believe that that woman got off. I can't believe that Peggy got off scot-free. I mean, it just, I don't know. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that they figured it out. I think that the crime happened exactly how uh, it was portrayed in the criminal proceedings. And the reason I say that is because when you have a detective like Detective May collecting evidence, documenting everything, you know, so methodical that, you know, even now, almost 100 years later, he's still revered by forensic experts. He probably got it right. No, I, I don't think that. I mean, I'm just talking about like maybe because it was one of those things where, you know, if, if the only charge is murder in mm-hmm. the first degree or murder in the second degree, you know, because it was just the, the first guy that they were um, being tried for, um, you know, maybe they didn't put anything on there. But I'm surprised they didn't follow up with like a burglary, burglary charge or, or you know, did she get any uh, ill-gotten gains from the robbery at all? Did she? There's no indication that that she ever benefited from it at all. I mean, she went on to continue being a waitress. They say that the day after Hall's execution, the day after he was hanged, she went right back to work and continued waitressing. So I think if she had if she had gotten any significant amount of money, she probably wouldn't have done that. Wow, I just find it hard to believe. That's pretty hardcore. So I think that there was there was a notion back at this time that women just didn't commit these kinds of crimes. And, you know, it was just like a much higher bar to convict a woman of murder. Mm -hmm. I think that that's really changing, Mm -hmm. you know. Yay, women's equality. (laughs) Well, you know, (laughs) when I was talking to my husband about this and I was, you know, briefly saying, yeah, and one of them got, or no, he heard your tease from the I-5 killer and he's like, let me guess it was the guy. And I'm like, yeah. (laughs) But I mean, I think that like Jodi Arias, I don't know if you've ever followed that case, but like she tried doing that thing with the crying and the like simple and plain clothing. And, you know, they were like, "Uh, she did it. Like, I think that people are just like. We're wising up. Wising up. Yeah. I mean, it feels like, you know something she should have gotten something for that that's a lot of a lot of carnage a lot of people dying because of her plan yeah you know so what's coming up for next week so kim next week we're going to stay in bremerton but we're going to fast forward to 1986 where a mother and her four-year-old daughter are murdered we're going to tap citizen sluice to see if we can help solve this case I couldn't imagine. Yeah. So, um, but one thing I wanted to say, you know, we so appreciate your guys' feedback when you reach out to us on our Facebook channel and all of our other platforms. But we'd love to know any cases that you're interested in having us cover. You know, whenever we mention that, we get a flurry of (laughs) of, uh, armchair detectives reaching out to us. And we love it so much when you do that because, you know, we... There are so many cases out there that that we haven't even heard of that are fascinating. Like this Erland's Point case from this week. I mean... I hadn't heard of it before, you know, it was brought to our attention and it's incredible. Yeah. So please definitely reach out to us. And as always, you know, if you have a couple of minutes, you know, if you're hanging around. um, Oh, just say it. Like (laughs) us, give us a review. Yeah. I'm Kim Shepard with Carolyn Osorio, and this is the scene of the crime.